Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Ketamine is the cut-price drug that's taking Australia's party scene by storm. Australia is currently in the throes of record-high consumption, with Victoria and the Northern Territory major hotspots. The drug, which is medically used both as an anaesthetic in humans and a tranquilizer for horses, is now a cheap alternative to drugs like cocaine and ecstasy. It goes from a light experience to quite a heavy experience, as some people uh, call it the K-hole, where um, if you take quite a lot of it, that's a, a very truly dissociative experience. So that could be really unsettling for some people. In the second half of this episode, we explore how this drug works, its risks and why it's so cheap with Dr Monica Barrett from the University of New South Wales. First off, though, let's get into the headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Thursday, the 18th of January. Hey, Sasha. Hi, everyone. Well, the US has confirmed overnight it will be redesignating the Houthis as a terrorist group in response to recent attacks in the Red Sea. America's National Security Advisor says the Yemen-based group fit the textbook definition of terrorism because they've put US personnel in danger and they've jeopardised global trade operations. So what does this redesignation actually mean? Well, it probably won't take effect for another month. And it could trigger sanctions for anyone or any state or entity that now tries to provide material support for the Houthis, like, for example, Iran. All this comes after attacks by the Iran-allied group on ships in the region have disrupted maritime trade between Asia and Europe in a huge way. Uh, the Houthis say their attacks are aimed at ships with links to Israel, and they won't be backing down in their support of the Palestinian people, even in light of this latest redesignation, and they'll be continuing their attacks on targets until Israel's war on Gaza stops, Sasha. Yeah, and it's not the first time the Iranian-backed rebels have had this happen. So in the dying days of the Trump administration, officials added the Houthis to what's called the US specially designated global terrorist list, essentially giving it terrorist status. Uh, And that was despite warnings from the UN that that move could push war-torn Yemen into widespread famine. Uh, Soon after Joe Biden's inauguration in 2021, the decision was made to remove the Houthis from the SDG. So there's been a lot of movement in that space in recent years. And we did actually cover the Houthis in yesterday's deep dive. If you're listening to this and you want to learn more. Two senior British royals are going to be out of action for a while. Uh, The Princess of Wales has undergone abdominal surgery and King Charles has needed treatment for an enlarged prostate feels weird to be talking about King Charles's prostate. <laughs> uh, well, Kate is expected to spend as long as two weeks in hospital after the operation, which has been deemed a success. But there's not very many details about why she needed the procedure that's been kept under wraps. Uh, a pretty detailed statement by the Royal Standards asked the public and the media to respect the need for normality for her children and for her medical records to remain private. The statement went on to say she's on likely to return to public duties until after Easter. And that's a bit of a shame for her and for her family, but also for royal watchers. Normally, they go to that big church service at Easter time. And um, normally, that's a pretty great opportunity for, for fashion as well. She normally wears some pretty great outfits to that church service. 
Yeah, and all the TVs were leading with uh, this story this morning. It's obviously quite big. And, you know, I really respect the fact that in a statement, the royals have said, hey, we're not going to go into details about why she needed this or what's going on. So, uh, you know, that's as much as we'll get. And that's totally fine. Uh, Let's go back to Charles's enlarged prostate. Uh, He will need to have the procedure. Uh, They say he's going to be out of action for a short period while he recuperates and that his condition is benign. So good news for the monarch. Uh, He's going to be okay, but he just needs to have this procedure to look after, uh, again, an enlarged prostate. And hopefully we'll never have to talk about his prostate ever again. Bosses and CEOs forcing their staff to return to the office will live to regret it. Now that's according to Aussie software giant Atlassian. The company, which has offices all over the world, has released a new report that dives into what it's learned from 1,000 days of remote work or distributed work, as they call it. Executive Annie Dean, head of Team Anywhere, says 2024 is the year bosses will realise that return to office mandates are eroding trust between workers and employers. Those are some pretty strong words. And the rule is not having a positive impact on productivity. She's also criticised hybrid work, saying it gives staff an illusion of choice when in reality they're still required to live close to the office, usually in expensive capital cities. Atlassian has seen the number of candidates per role more than double since Team Anywhere was implemented without any dips in productivity. I know that that's a huge draw card for friends of mine who are allowed to work from home. Um, Sasha, what do you make of all of this? Katrina, you and I, the work that we do, we can't really effectively work from home full time. It's just not an option for us. You know, we have to either be in studio or, you know, coming into the office to meet with people. And that's fine. I would love to be able to work from home, but I can't. But I really really impassionate about people who can work from home being allowed to work from home. My mum is a prime example. So uh, mum and dad lived in Sydney. Uh, They bought a property on the South Coast as like a holiday house and they just loved it down there. South Coast of New South Wales, I should say. Uh, And they absolutely loved it down there. And then COVID hit uh, and they couldn't get down there. And she works for a global company. The uh, head office is in Singapore and they implemented work from home like everyone else did. And she realised she could work from their property on the South Coast. And they have not forced their workers at my mum's company to go back into the office. And mum and dad have been able to move down there and they have this beautiful life where they get up and they walk on the beach every morning and then, you know, mum's uh, in the in the office doing some pretty high-powered stuff, but she can have this lifestyle that she wants while still performing her job. Her productivity hasn't dipped, all her clients are happy with her and I think it's just one of those success stories that proves you know, we should be able to let people, if, they, if they're doing their job and getting everything done, let them work from where they want to. I, I hate this need for bosses to go, all right, everyone, come back in, because it makes people miserable and people aren't happy. And as you said, it's a huge draw card uh, for companies that advertise that their staff can work from home, wherever that may be. So I'm super passionate about this. I love that Atlassian has put out this report uh, and is hoping to show that there are a lot of misconceptions about letting people work remotely. 
Moving on to the tennis, and Novak Djokovic has advanced to the third round of the Australian Open after warding off a determined Alexi Popperin overnight. Now, the Aussie forced the world number one to a tough four-set match, 6-3, 4-6, then a tie-break in the third set before Djokovic took the last set 6-3. It wasn't all tennis, though. Djokovic actually lashed out at the crowd during the match. A lot of things that were being told to me say, on the court. I was tolerating it from most of the match, but I, you know, and at one point I had enough and I asked him whether he wants to come down and tell it to my face, you know. Djokovic in the post-match interview there. Uh, he even mentioned Nick Kyrgios, who's known for confronting crowds, saying, I think he would have loved that. The fan was escorted from the stadium, but it didn't stop Djokovic from turning around, throwing up his fist and yelling in the fan's direction when he won. This seems to be a thing with tennis players, Katrina. They get really, really heated, but I suppose they're so close to the crowd they can hear everything they're saying, so it can probably uh, uh, get under your skin a bit more than maybe a footy player who can't really hear anyone on the field. Well, imagine getting heckled in real time just for doing your job, having somebody follow you around and sledging you while you're trying to do your actual job, which the person in the crowd, let's face it, could not do even at a quarter of the capacity. But look, it sounds like Djokovic has used this to put some even um, greater fire in his belly and, and take the win and good on him. Yeah, absolutely. But also a great day for Aussie Alex Demonor. We've all got our eyes on him, hoping he's going to go really far into this tournament. Uh, He got through to the third round after beating Italian Matteo Analdi in the second round, 6-3, 6-love, 6-3. So a good story there. Hopefully we will see that continue. Katrina, thank you so much for joining us for the headlines today. Next up, we are deep diving into ketamine. Ketamine use is growing among young Australian party and festival goers as a cut price alternatives to drugs like cocaine and ecstasy. But it comes with serious risks and National Wastewater Monitoring has found consumption of ketamine rose to a record high last year. Simon Beaton is part of our listener podcast team and he's caught up with Dr Monica Barrett, a social scientist at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales, to get the lowdown on all things Ket and why it's becoming the drug of choice for many Aussies. For many people, if you mention ketamine, the association will be, oh, that's the horse tranquilizer drug and not a drug that's a, a bit more on the outskirts uh, in terms of popularity. But am I correct in saying that it is quickly becoming more mainstream in the world of illicit substances? Yeah, so I mean, ketamine has been around for many decades as a dissociative and an anaesthetic as well, and used in human and veterinary medicine. And around sort of 25, 20 years ago, it started becoming used more recreationally, uh, and and some of that was diverted ketamine use. So so it was ketamine that was made as a medicine that was diverted into recreational use. But then what we've started to see now is illicitly produced ketamine. So powders like heroin, meth, whatever, just a powder that's in a a Ziploc bag, that kind of thing. It's not diverted from medicine. And that's being used um, mainly uh, snorted, uh, sometimes injected, but but mainly it's uh, it's snorted. So that has been increasing. And in Australia, um, there was a study published last year using Australian data that was looking at um, there's a sentinel group people who use ecstasy and other similar drugs monthly or more often, they get interviewed every year 
and they've been interviewed for more than 20 years now. So looking at the trends in ketamine use amongst that group. So there are already people who use stimulants, um, some psychedelics, they already use those. And the ketamine use has gone gone up pretty steadily since 2008 when they first started measuring it up to now. And that is driven by Melbourne and Sydney. So it's not uniform across Australia, the trends in recreational ketamine use, interestingly. Do we have any indicators on why it is becoming more popular in Melbourne and Sydney? Yeah, I mean, Melbourne and Sydney have more diverse drug markets. So the larger cities in Australia have better access to some of the substances that sort of don't make their way out to some of the more far-flung places. Obviously, to get substances, for example, into Western Australia, there's a lot more involved in getting them there. Um, and some of these things, like especially cocaine, that will just sort of stay around the larger cities and not make it out. Or if it does, it's maybe not as strong or it's adulterated. So yeah, I think that's partly part of it is just the drugs markets, the way they operate in Australia tends to favour those two larger cities. But yeah, I don't know if there's anything cultural or if it's just literally about the markets themselves and what's available. Well, I have heard that if you were to purchase a bag of cocaine on the street or a bag of ketamine, the ketamine would be a lot cheaper. Is this correct? So one of the yes, yeah, so one of the drivers might be cost in terms of people desiring to use ketamine, but also I mean it has so it can create a buzz, I guess you could say. There's pleasant experience in using it, but then it's interesting with ketamine because it goes from a light experience to quite a heavy experience, as some people uh, call it the K-hole, where um, if you take quite a lot of it, that's a, a very truly dissociative experience. So that could be really unsettling for some people, especially if they're not expecting that kind of experience. They're expecting more of a party vibe buzz thing and they take too much or if the ketamine that they take is stronger than they expect, then they may end up in this quite um, difficult state and they may really feel like they're losing touch with reality for a little while. They might feel quite concerned about what's going on. Near-death experiences have been reported, for example, people actually feeling like they literally feel like they're dying and then, of course, they're not, and they come out of that. And there's some, obviously some famous cases recently, um, you know, Matt Perry in the States, um, where they had ketamine on board and passed away due to misadventure. So they're, they're in the bath or they're in, they're in a pool. And this happens, of course, with, with psychedelics, LSD, etc. They're relatively safe, but if you're in a setting where you don't have someone with you and then you take too much and then you're in a, a semi-psychotic state, you could potentially do things like jump off a balcony, drown. So the, these are the areas where, in terms of harm reduction, the use of dissociatives and psychedelics, you know, it's always good to have a safe environment, a safe setting, not be near balconies or bodies of water, that kind of thing, because unfortunately these, these situations do exist for, for large doses. I'd like to dive into that a little bit further because that was quite interesting. You mentioned it being a party drug, a buzz, but also psychedelic. We know it's a horse tranquilizer. So what sort of a drug is ketamine? It's understood to be a dissociative. So it has its own category. So there's a dissociative category of substances. And within that category, there are also a number of other substances. So there are ketamine analogues, drugs that are similar to ketamine, but not quite that. And I was going to bring up the fact that 
you can't always know that you have ketamine when you buy something that is illicitly produced because the drugs market isn't regulated, as we know, uh, unless, of course, you're buying medical ketamine, which is made by a pharmaceutical company. But for those that are buying uh, illicit ketamine, there's a number of different substances that could be in there, including other dissociatives. So a study that I was involved with just last year, where we had a look at drug checking results from another country, but they were doing them with Australian samples. And there were 20 ketamine samples, ketamine samples, I'm using inverted commas, and the majority of them had other drugs on board or were completely substituted with a different dissociative. So we don't always know that it's actually ketamine. So this is a problem we have with, you know, all other substances that are illicitly produced um, is what what do we actually have? And so what that means is you might end up taking a different substance that has a dissociative effect, but maybe is too strong. The dosage could be completely different to what you're used to. That could be one of the reasons why some of these negative things happen. Or it could just be it's hard to know what the dosage is, especially if you're already affected by the drug and you have an additional dose. Does this make it more dangerous than other illicit substances because of the uh, chance of going into that K-hole, that place where you're totally out from the world versus other drugs if you can't tell how pure it is? I mean, look, I think that risk, the potential risk of not knowing how pure the substance is, is just inherently part of unregulated drug markets and caused by prohibitionist policies that uh, operate in this space. However, in terms of, you know, pitting up ketamine, illicitly produced ketamine versus, you know, LSD or MDMA or psilocybin, you know, that lot of drugs all have slightly different potential risks. Essentially, it's about knowing what those risks are. So, you know, the danger would be someone coming in who's naive or novice to ketamine and its specific risks, maybe isn't aware that the K-hole experience could happen, goes into that experience and is, you know, terrified. If they don't have someone with them to kind of sit with them, trip sitting is what it's called, and hopefully guide them through that process gently um, because these these things do pass eventually. And knowing that that is the case is quite hard if you're right in the middle of them. I guess the other thing to note about ketamine and so many of the other substances that are prohibited in Australia is, I mean, ketamine is a medicine. At the moment, it is available as in very restricted form as a nasal spray, as a treatment for treatment-resistant depression. There's a number of different things you have to be. It has to be treatment-resistant depression and you have to have it administered by a health professional. So you can't just take it home. But it's just really fascinating to me that we've got all this stuff happening with illicit ketamine and its, you know, its rise in, in uh, use and interest around the country, whilst at the very same time, we have its rise as a medicine, not just in its typical form used in hospitals for anaesthesia or used in veterinary uh, medicine, as we've known about for many decades, but we have it rising as a treatment for depression, which I think is really fascinating to, to look at that and think, well, you know, maybe there are people out there taking illicit ketamine who are actually treating mental health issues. That's possible too. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, definitely possible. And if we remove the danger and the issue of uh, illegal drugs and not knowing exactly what is in there and the purity and that sort of thing, I mean, how how dangerous is 
ketamine. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. I mean, there are some dangers inherent to ketamine, even if it's pure. And one of those is urinary issues. So people who take ketamine daily or or regularly for many years can end up with issues with urination and issues with the bladder. So quite serious issues with their bladder. So that's a, a, a separate physical harm. Uh, you know, not unlike if you're an alcoholic, someone who drinks daily heavily for many decades, you know, liver cancer is, you can pretty much, you know, a lot of people that have liver cancer, that's exactly how they've gotten it through through alcohol, very heavy alcohol use. And so, you know, heavy ketamine use over many years um, does have this concerning problem with the bladder. So that's sort of separate as a physical concern, but in terms of the psychological issues, you can also become dependent on ketamine. So you might want to have more of it. Uh, tolerance is possible as well. So you want to have, you need more to feel the same effect. So that's also there. You know, I don't believe it has as high dependence properties as some of the other substances that are out there, but that is a concern for some. Having said that, When we look at all the substances, it's certainly not the most dangerous. You know, there's been some studies where pitting all the substances we know against each other and ranking them. And I believe ketamine's sort of in the middle zone there um, because of those urinary uh, concerns uh, and dependence, meaning that it can't sort of be low risk or no risk. Psilocybin from magic mushrooms, by the way, is right down the bottom of that list. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, it's good to see that we're starting to get a little bit more uh, change in that area with medicinal use in a legal sense. Yeah, that's right. And that's what's happening with ketamine as well. It hasn't got the same press as psilocybin and MDMA, but essentially that's where we're up to with ketamine. And we may find that as the research goes further along that we can get to a point where medical ketamine for the treatment of depression can be more available to people. From what I was reading about it, it's still prohibitively expensive in terms of its cost. You know, it's concerning that if there's people out there with treatment-resistant depression that don't have many thousands of dollars to spend, that they can't currently access this um, as a second or third line treatment. But hopefully that will change over time. That was Simon Beaton, one of our listener podcast team, speaking with Dr Monica Barrett from the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. And that's all we have time for this morning. Make sure you check your feed at three o'clock this afternoon for the next episode of The Briefing, and I'll be back in your feed from six tomorrow morning. And just quickly before you go, if you have a story you'd like us to pursue, make sure you shoot us a DM via Instagram and we'll follow it up for you. And if you're a fan of The Briefing, please tell a friend. Help us grow this incredible community. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thank you for listening. Listener.